Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Today we're looking at verse 9 through 17a, meaning the first sentence of 17, all right? With verses 1 through 8, Paul has given us really a rock-solid introduction of what he is communicating in this book. First of all, the focus is Jesus the Christ. The transmission, how we got it, it started, it originated in the heart of God the Father. He gave it to God the Son, who gave it to his angel, who ultimately gave it to John. The blessing, there are several blessings that are mentioned. I think there are seven total in the book of Revelation for those who read it, for those who hear it, and for those who keep it. Also in those initial verses, John introduced himself to us. He identified who his audience, his primary audience was, and also introduced us to the triune God whom he serves. He proclaimed the gospel. He gave assurance of the second coming of Christ and also shared the pronouncement of Christ in his full deity as omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. As we come to verse 9 then, this is where John begins to move from his introduction uh, to sharing his journey that not only unveils the Lord Jesus in his radiant glory, but also provides for us in graphic detail a picture A picture of the events that are going to take place before the fullness of his second coming, the establishment of his millennial kingdom, and the ultimate destruction of this creation and the subsequent remaking of it in eternal perfection. And so that's what we're moving into as we move along. So let's read this passage beginning with verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was, uh, was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So, Father, as we now open our Bibles and as we look into this passage, um, most definitely need your Holy Spirit to help with the communication, to help with um, our receiving of it, to be able to understand the things that are um, here in this particular writing. And, Lord, not only to understand it, but to receive your message to us collectively and individually of what you would have us do with what we encounter here. So I ask that you would speak to us this morning and that you would guide us to the place you want us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, every action, every conversation... Every decision that we make has a context that influences it. Sometimes the influence of our context is very small, and sometimes it's really huge. But everything we do comes out of some context. 
For John, there are four contexts that are in play here with his writing of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we find these four contexts in verse 9. So let's introduce you to those and talk a little bit about them. The first context is identified by the words brother and partner. Brother and partner. I put these two together because they both speak of relationship. John had a unique bond with his audience. They shared certain life-defining circumstances. And one of those life-defining circumstances is the second context that gets added to the first, and that is tribulation. He says, I am your brother, your partner in the tribulation. Now, when he says in the tribulation at this juncture, uh, this is not a reference to the future tribulation that will be unveiled as we move further into the book of Revelation, but it refers to a real and present tribulation that was falling at that time on the body of Christ. You see, for the longest time, Christianity existed within uh, the Roman system with very little persecution. But as the first century A.D. was coming to a close, Christ followers were becoming targets of serious persecution. Uh, Politically, they were considered to be disloyal to Rome because they would not acknowledge Caesar as the supreme authority. Now, They had no problem, the Christians of that day had no problem acknowledging that Caesar was someone with authority. They had no problem with that. They just could not acknowledge him as the one with ultimate authority. You see, they had a king, as we have a king. His name is Christ Jesus, and they considered him to hold the ultimate authority, and therefore they could not say Caesar is Lord the way that they would say Christ Jesus is Lord. Religiously, they were denounced as atheists, if you can believe it, because they rejected the pantheon of gods that Rome worshipped. Instead of worshipping the gods that could be seen, that they carried around and had in their homes and in their businesses, they worshipped a god that could not be seen. And so for many of the Roman population, they would look upon the Christian and say, well, then you're an atheist. You do not believe in the gods that we believe in that can be seen. Socially, they were uh, primarily, the Christians were from the lower classes And this caused then the Roman aristocracy to despise them. And economically, the Christians were seen as a threat to the priests, to the craftsmen, and to the merchants who profited in idol worship. You see, the more converts to Jesus, the more converts to Christianity uh, resulted in less customers that these people had for their religious trinkets and idols. And so the Christian community found themselves under increasing scrutiny and persecution. But the persecution of Christianity in the Roman system really kind of reached its height under Domitian. It was under his rule that the persecution of Christ followers literally spread across the entire empire. And so In this context, uh, John and the church were under great tribulation because of their faith. The next context that I'm going to share with you, the kingdom of God, is a positive context. It is a positive note that John and the church shared a common citizenship in the kingdom of God. And this was an important context Because it was this context of recognizing I'm primarily as a Christian a citizen of the kingdom of God and Christ is my king that drove many of them to refuse acceptance in the pagan culture. They refused to say Caesar is Lord. They refused to bow the knee to other gods. They refused to do many of the social contextual things that others were doing because that would have been uh, going against Uh, what being part of the kingdom of God was all about. 
And so because they saw themselves as having an ultimate king who had given revelation about how they were to live, um, they were driven then to um, literally put themselves in a position where they were isolated and ostracized by the community as a whole. And finally, because of their loyalty to Christ and his teachings, they endured their difficult circumstances patiently. Patient endurance. Speaking of patient endurance, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote a letter that was already in circulation to the churches. And no doubt the churches that John was writing to had already received a copy of the book of James. And James talks about this issue of patient endurance in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James taught, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, the Lord allows difficulty to come into our lives, oftentimes as a catalyst to cause us to turn to him, to trust in him, to walk more closely with him. Because, you know, we have this, this, um, this tendency when things are going great to trust in ourselves, don't we? I mean, we really do. That, that tendency seems to come up in our lives. And nothing drives us to our knees in prayer. Nothing drives us back to the Word of God. Nothing drives us closer to the Lord Jesus than when we're going through difficulty. And that's why James is telling us, count it all joy. Why? Because it's going to create something within you that is going to allow you to be molded more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these things that I've shared with you thus far were the context that John shared with his readers. They were all in the same boat together, so to speak. But John had a context that was uniquely his. The Roman government had come against John and attempted to execute him. I mentioned this, uh, I think, probably in the first week, where uh, they uh, sentenced him to death, and they attempted to boil him to death in oil. Can you imagine that? Uh, but, I don't know, he survived. I can only attribute that to uh, the hand of God, right? Uh, sparing his life. But uh, he survived. And, uh, you know, when you think about that attempt at his life and the fact that he was pushing 90 years old, that is amazing that someone of that age would have to endure such a situation as that. But we're told in the scripture and in history that rather than a second attempt to finish the job, the government exiled him to the penal colony of the island of Patmos. Now, Patmos was not an island paradise. Uh, Patmos literally is a rock, and that's about all it is. It's there in the Aegean Sea, the size of Patmos is about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. It's located about 30 miles southwest of the city of Ephesus. And history tells us that John lived in a cave for shelter. He had very little food, and the food that he had was not of high quality. He had no human comforts, as we would count them, and he was assigned to hard labor in the mines. Now, do we have any 90-year-olds here today? We've got one. Anybody else that's 90? I mean, that's quite, there's another. All right, I'm so glad you're still with us. Awesome. Yeah, give them a round of applause. Two 90-year-olds with us today. That's awesome. That's awesome. But imagine at your age... 90 or more, or 80 or more, or 70 or 40 or 30. Imagine living in those kind of conditions. Challenging to say the least. And we have to ask ourselves the question what were John's crimes? 
What exactly did John do to cause the Roman government to turn against him in such a, a violent and abusive way? Well, we find in verse 9 that there were two crimes as they counted crimes. One was his unwavering commitment to the word of God. Now, we wouldn't count that as a crime. We would count that as, a, as, as an awesome virtue that you stand firm with God's word. But to them, that was a crime. And the second was the fact that he had an unwavering commitment to the testimony of Jesus Christ. He had an unwavering um, uh, commitment to the gospel of Christ. And those are the crimes, literally, that put him where we find him as he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so... John, no doubt, was a, a model Roman citizen, but he refused to declare Caesar as Lord. He would not cease to disciple others in the Scripture, and he would not fail to make the gospel known. And so that eventually brought tremendous persecution upon him, and it's in this persecution, this, this difficult position, this context in which John received and ultimately recorded the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it was on the rock of Patmos on a particular Sunday. Now that's a, an arguable translation or interpretation, I should say there. Uh, you know, if you just take it as it is in English, the Lord's Day Sunday has become known as the Lord's Day. It's the day he rose. It's the day the church began to meet. Uh, but there are some out there who say, no, 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 that's not what's meant at all. It's really talking about the day of the Lord, which is the day of God's great wrath. And so he was already caught up, so he's kind of in that. Well, we're not going to worry about that too terribly much. At this point in time, I'm just going to say it was a Sunday encounter. Is that okay with you? If not, I'm sorry. You can write down a note there about how you're seeing it. But anyway... We find that he is in the Spirit. And this is a phrase that John uses three other times in Revelation to describe his situation. In chapter 4, verse 2, in chapter 17, verse 3, and also in chapter 21, verse 10, he mentions himself being in the Spirit. So, what does being in the Spirit, what does that mean? I'm not sure that there are words adequate to try to explain what that means for someone who has never gone through the phenomenon itself but basically being in the spirit in this context is an experience wherein the power and control of the holy spirit one transcends the bounds of human sensory capabilities into a state where god makes them capable of seeing hearing and feeling things not possible in the normal human context. So that's what is being meant by in the Spirit. The Spirit of God has taken control of his soul, of his spirit, and has caused him in some way to transcend the bonds of normality so that he could witness things, so that he could hear things, so that he could feel things that are just not possible uh, when one is fully living and, uh, and, and, and conscious in the human body. And so I want us to make sure we understand this, that John's body, his physical body, did not leave Patmos. If he was in a cave, wherever he was, he was still there. Uh, but his soul, his spirit, was taken both into heaven and also into the future to experience not only a, a fuller revelation of Jesus, but also to experience and to come to understand what was yet to come for humanity, for Satan, and for the earth. Before I move on, just very quickly, there are three other biblical personalities that, ex that experienced such a situation as this. Ezekiel, the prophet, uh, Peter, and Paul all speak of this very same kind of of experience and so it was in this divinely orchestrated altered state that John heard behind himself a loud voice 
like a trumpet. A loud voice like a trumpet. One of the uniquenesses in Revelation is that each important announcement that comes is preceded by a loud sound. And we'll see that as we continue on through the book. In this case, that loud sound was a voice. A voice that sounded like a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet. But it was like that ear-piercing. You know, if you, someone were to hit a really high note with a trumpet and you're up close, it's going to really ring in your head. It's really going to pierce your ears. And so John makes it clear, I'm hearing a voice, but that voice is kind of like a loud trumpet. And this voice uh, gave John an assignment. The voice told John to write down everything that he would see. And after writing it down, he was to send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So what would you do if you were standing facing something and all of a sudden you heard a voice behind you that was screeching loud, that was like a trumpet? What would you do? Well, you would do what any of us would do. You would turn around, wouldn't you? You'd turn around to see what that voice is. Where is that voice coming from? This voice that is giving him instruction. And that's exactly what John did. He turned around to see what it was that was speaking to him. It wasn't obvious right up front. And we asked the question, well, what did he see? And he tells us what he saw. And I want to carry us through that, and I want to break these points down to give some, some context to these as we consider the things that John saw when he turned around to see where this voice was coming from and who it was that was speaking to him. And the first thing that he mentions there in verses 12 through 13 are seven golden lampstands. He saw seven golden lampstands. Now, the menorah is a lampstand that is very familiar to the Israelites. The original design of the menorah had one stand. It was just one, one stand that had seven arms that you've seen those that kind of curved out. One was straight up and the rest they were curved out. And those seven arms held seven lamps that were filled with oil. And they would light the, the wick of that uh, in that lamp stand in that lamp excuse me in in that uh, lamp itself, and obviously that would be used for light. But I don't believe that the menorah is what is in view here. Uh, John is very clear that he saw seven lamp stands, indicating seven individual lamp stands that had seven individual lamps at the top and most likely those lampstands formed a circle or some kind of a uh, position uh, that would be other than like the menorah that was one stand and they're all just there in, in, in single file together and you say why, why do you believe that? Why do you believe it would be like in a circle or some other kind of a configuration because John tells us that he saw a very unique person and that he saw this very unique person in the midst of the lampstands. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at a regular menorah, I don't know how you can be in the midst of it. I mean, it's just, it's just there. It's one thing in front of you. You can be on the front. You can be on the side. You can be at the back, right? But you can't quite be in the midst. You can't be moving around in a menorah it just, unless you're a miniature person. And so I think that just common sense when we look at this says that he's speaking here of seven individual lampstands. And this individual, this, this personage that John saw in the midst of the lampstands, he describes him as one like the son of man. One like the son of man. Now this, this statement, son of man, is a, a statement that Jesus used repeatedly during his earthly ministry to identify himself uh, in the mission of God as well as to identify himself with God himself. 
The significance of this term, the Son of Man, comes from a heavenly vision that was given to Daniel. Remember Daniel? We were going through parts of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6 this past summer. Uh, we didn't get to chapter 7. We weren't intended to get to chapter 7. We'll get there eventually. But, but this, this term, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7. And I want us to take a look at uh, verses 9 through um, verse 14. This is Daniel writing. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now I'm going to skip verses 11 and 12 simply because at this juncture they have no significance to what I'm talking about, but they will later on in our study. So I'm just going to move beyond that and get to verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Remember that term, the clouds of heaven? There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now when Daniel here mentions the Ancient of Days and also mentions the one who stood before the Ancient of Days. He's presenting both of those as deity. He's presenting both of them as God. But the unique thing is that the one who is standing before the Ancient of Days, he is seeing that one standing there in heaven in human form. Now, this is before the Incarnation. This is before the Son of God came into the world and took on flesh. This is a long time before that happened, and yet Daniel is seeing the Son of Man, the Son of God, the God of very God himself, standing before the throne of God. And what Daniel was seeing there was a pre-incarnate heavenly revelation of the Son of God, fully divine, yet fully human. And what Daniel heard there and saw was that he was being commissioned to assume the role that the New Testament reveals to us belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the one whom Daniel saw in his vision is the one that John is now seeing in his vision. The one that John is seeing now in his vision is one that he knew very well when the Lord Jesus was here on the earth. But he was then veiled in flesh. His glory was veiled in flesh. Now he is seeing him in his unveiled glory. And so he offers to us a detailed description of this son of man who is standing in the midst of the lampstands. I want to take a moment to walk you through the various descriptions that God gives us of the glorified son of man and what they communicate about him. And the reason I want to kind of take this extra time to do this is because it would be a crime to gloss over what is meant to reveal our Lord and Savior. Also, I just want you to take note that in some of these descriptions, you'll find the same description being given to the Son of Man that was given to the Ancient of Days back in Daniel chapter 7. So he begins with this descriptor, a long robe and a golden sash. A long robe and a golden sash. To me and you, unless you're very unusual, this has little to no significance whatsoever. So what? He was wearing a long robe and he had a golden sash. Big deal. But to the Israelites of that day, to John himself, it was a big deal. Because he would have understood the significance of this straight away. 
the robe to the feet and the golden sash, or as it's referred to in some passages of Scripture, the girdle, which don't think of a common girdle, okay? It's, it's really not like that at all. But basically it's just a golden piece of, of, of cloth that you could tie off that would hold clothes together, okay? But that long robe to the feet and the golden sash were the garments of the high priest. Exodus chapter 28, verse 4. If you go through Exodus chapter 28, you see a long list of all that God had ordered the Israelite or Moses to put together for his brother Aaron, who was becoming the high priest. And this long robe to the feet and golden sash were part of that, uh, that dress. And so we see here that the Son of Man is being portrayed as the high priest. He's being portrayed in this way through the clothing that he's wearing. And of course, last week we read through uh, scriptures that actually refer to Jesus as our high priest. He then speaks about his hair. It was white, like wool, like snow. And if you remember, that's how Daniel described the Ancient of Days, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. What is the significance of this white hair? Well, the significance is purity, holiness, purity, and holiness. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Clearly we see this issue of going from being impure to pure. You have sins that are red as scarlet. They're going to become white. They're going to become clean. They're going to become covered. They're going to become forgiven. Now, when you think about it, a high priest would have certain concerns about the people that he represented. And certainly one of the concerns that a high priest would have would be that his people would be pure, that they would be holy before their God. And that brings up to me a question when I consider who it is that's being referred to here. How does Jesus, who is our high priest, how does he purify us? How does he make us holy? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The holy purity of our high priest is obtained by us through his own sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own blood that was poured out for us. And so we see this Son of Man being pictured as the high priest. We see him being pictured as pure and holy. And then we come to this descriptor, eyes of fire. Eyes of fire. Now, fire speaks of discernment. That which penetrates to the very depths of one's being, putting one's purity to the test. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul warns the church that our works will one day be judged by the Lord, not to determine heaven or hell, but to determine the quality of the service that was given to him and then the giving or the withholding of reward. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest or revealed, for the day, meaning the day of judgment, will disclose it. 
because it will be revealed by what? Say it louder. By what? By fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on, the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Our high priest, who is pure and holy, with eyes of fire that can see through our pretenses, what we are discovering here in this passage is that he is moving among us. And he sees what is true about us. And I just want to pause there for a minute. Pretense. Mask. Aren't we guilty many times of wearing a mask? We want people to think something of us. Obviously, positive, good. We're good boys. We're good girls. We're following Jesus. We're doing everything that we should do. But oftentimes we're tempted, are we not, to put out a pretense. Well, you know what? I can fool you. It's not my intent to do that, but I can, and you can fool me. But none of us can fool the Lord Jesus because his purity will not stand for that which isn't and his eyes of fire can cut right through right through our pretense and he knows exactly who you are he knows exactly who I am and that's something for us to keep in mind he knows our motives he knows our inner desires he knows the true condition of our hearts Because as Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Just a little warning. Don't ever try to compare yourself to someone else. You may be better than someone else. Then again, you may be a lot worse than someone else. But you know what? That doesn't matter one iota. All that matters is, how do you compare to the Lord Jesus? And he knows. The good thing is, he's filled with grace. And he's filled with mercy for those who have come to him. And his desire is to help us to get beyond that pretense, to become something that is real and solid and strong, that brings him glory and is beneficial to others. Well, we come to the feet. Feet like burnished bronze in keeping with the progression uh, that John is laying out the descriptors high priest pure and holy eyes of fire testing and exposing the thoughts and intents of the heart we find his feet described as having the appearance of burnished bronze or glowing brass many bible scholars see a correlation with his feet with the brazen altar of the temple of God the brazen altar was made from polished brass and it was the place where the judgment of God would rest as sacrifices were made upon it to appease his righteousness and thus were there for atonement it's where atonement for sin was made And so our high priest, holy and pure, with fiery eyes that discern righteousness from sin, is the one who we've read about who took the blood of his own sacrifice into the heavenly temple to make the final and eternal atonement for sin. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John, by the way, same author as the book of Revelation, said we have... 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, which means satisfaction or atonement for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Imagine 
You hear this loud voice. You turn around. You see these lampstands. And you see this personage that in your mind is reminiscent. And I'm not sure how he had this image because he wasn't with Daniel. But of the Son of Man, perhaps it was reminiscent somewhat of Jesus in his flesh. I don't know. But then he begins to look at all of these different things that are quite different. And he records them for our benefit. Finally, a voice like the roar of many waters. You know, the loudness and the strength of the voice speaks to the authority of the words of our high priest. Think about the authority and the power of the words of God. This is the voice that said, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who had been dead for four days came out of his grave. This is the voice that said, it is finished, and sin's curse was broken. It is the voice that will call the dead in Christ to rise, the voice that will call those who are alive and remain to be caught up to be with him. It is the voice that will one day condemn sinners to eternal hell, the voice that will invite saints into the bliss of heaven. It is the voice that will one day destroy the current creation and recreate a new heaven and a new earth where God in his fullness will dwell with his people forever. The voice of the Son of Man with power, authority. So this is the description that John gives us of the person that he saw standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. But as you know, there are three more observations. He also talks about seeing this one holding seven stars in his right hand. He talks about seeing a, a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. He speaks about the brilliance of his face like the sun when shining in full strength. In order to finish the rest of this message and to get us out in a reasonable time, I'm going to have to put that off till next week. So we'll pick up with that next week as we continue on and finish chapter 1 of Revelation and the second part of John coming face to face with the Son of Man. But we're not ready to close just yet, so don't get too anxious. I want us to see here John's response. When he came face to face with the Son of Man, how did John respond? Well, verse 17, the very first phrase, the very first sentence says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I want you to take note that John did not fall at his feet as though dead after he had written all this stuff down. No, I, I believe what happened is he heard the voice, he turned around, he got a great look at this person in the midst of the seven lampstands, and he dropped dead right there on the spot. We'll talk about how he comes back next week. But I want to talk a little bit here about, and by the way, then he, would, he recorded what he saw later on. But I want to ask the question and answer, why did John fall as though dead when he saw the Son of Man in this situation? And the reason is because he had come face to face with the eternal Son of God. And the Bible teaches us that no one in their natural state, meaning an unglorified state, can look upon God and live. When Moses asked to see God's glory, he was warned, by God, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In order to see God in his radiant, unveiled glory, there must be a change in us because his appearance is too awesome for our humanity as it currently is to endure. But you know, I believe that Scripture tells us that there's coming a day when that's going to change. 
There's coming a day for the redeemed when we will be able to look upon the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, the glory of the Spirit, and live and be blessed and be encouraged. Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. This is getting to the place where the new heaven and the new earth have been created. And it says, No longer will there be anything accursed in that, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. What a day that's going to be. What a day it's going to be when we're able to stand in the presence of a holy God, in the presence of our Savior as he is now fully glorified, nothing veiling who and what he is. And because we are glorified and in his image, we'll be able to look upon him and be able to marvel and be able to worship and be able to sing and be able to pray and be able to learn from him. What a day that's going to be. So Christian, I say to you this morning, be encouraged. Be encouraged that God the Father and his Son, our Savior, are on the throne. And they have a glorious eternity awaiting you. A glorious eternity that is so awesome and so great that the the trials and the tribulations that you're enduring in this life will be minuscule compared to the glory and the joy that we will share together as we are with him. I know that there are people in this room that are facing challenges. There are people in this room who have serious hurts, emotional hurts. There are things that have happened, your heart literally aches constantly. There's people in this room who have disease, illness. People in this room who are suffering from any number of difficulties and trials. People in this room who are suffering with someone else who is under the gun of difficulty. And we wonder, when is it all going to end? When is it all going to change? Well, I'm here to tell you that the Lord is more than capable to bring you through that fiery trial today. And I'm also here to tell you that one day he's going to bring you into a place where none of that exists. You will never see death. You will never see separation. Your heart will never grieve. But you will be in the joy and the glory of God himself. And what I would encourage you to do is to dig into that. As they say, lean into that. And as you go through your trials, as you go through your difficulties, just remember this. That God loves you. He is with you. In this world, Our Savior told us, our Savior told us we're going to go through trials and tribulations. It ain't going to be easy. But he also told us he's preparing a place for us and that he will come again to receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we will be also. That is a reality to cling to. So Christian, I would encourage you to be encouraged to recognize what's coming and to be grateful in your heart even now that the Lord has brought you into his family so that that glorious future has become yours. But I also want to speak to folks in this room, to folks that are online, folks that will be watching later down the road or our archived messages, folks perhaps that are in the overflow room. I, I want to say to those people who have yet to believe in the Lord and give their lives to him that the glorious eternity that the Lord has prepared is only for those who come to him in faith and repentance only for those there is nothing that it remains for an individual who stays outside of a relationship with Christ but condemnation pain and suffering I don't say that to scare you. I say that because it's true. And I would make an appeal to you today to consider that reality.
and to be willing to at least ask questions. I know you've got questions about Scripture. You've got questions about the gospel. You've got questions about heaven and hell. You've got questions about Jesus and his ability to save. Come and ask them. Come and ask them. Let's get together. Let's talk. Let me open the Bible. Let me show you that the Spirit of God may use God's Word to change your heart and to bring you into that saving relationship with Christ that will bring you one day fully into his presence, perfected as we were meant to be. My contact information is on the screen. If you'll reach out, I'll reach back. And I know that as we gather around the word, that God will meet you where you are. Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning to go through these verses. I fully recognize that we didn't complete it all, we didn't get to it all, and I think that's all right. If you give us next Sunday, we'll continue on. And we'll continue on as we go through this book. But today, today, I pray for my fellow believers, my fellow believers who are suffering from some something, some illness, some emotional distress. My prayer is that your Holy Spirit would be upon them and that you would bring strength and encouragement, forgiveness, reassurance to their life lord for christians who need to take a next step in their development as your sons and daughters may they take that step today may they even uh, go to the next step table and speak with pastor brett about what they're concerned about and let him help them find that next step in their development and their growth but i pray for those specifically who are lost who do not know Jesus, oh God, would you dispatch your spirit to draw them, to reveal to them the truth of your word, to open their spiritual eyes to their need, which is great, but also to your answer, which is greater. And may they find forgiveness, grace, mercy, entrance into the family of God today may they come to you and find what they've been looking for Father I pray this in Jesus name Amen This is On Mission The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale to learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.